Hello, Jogcast listeners. This is Adam, your friendly neighbourhood show editor. As many of you may know from the pictures on Facebook and Twitter, we've recently got a new studio, and we've got some new equipment to go in that new studio. This is really great for the Jogcast, and uh, will hopefully lead to some higher quality audio. But that being said, we're still learning how the new equipment works, and something went a bit wrong with the recording this time. So halfway through, the presenters had to go back and re-record a lot of material. So that has meant that the audio quality changes a little bit halfway through. Um, so I thought I'd better forewarn you. And just so you know when it's going to happen, there's a handy little beep which will sound like this. Yeah, sorry about this, we're still learning our way around the new equipment, but um, hopefully we will get better in, in the coming months. Um, anyway, on with the show. The Jodcast, still trying to make Fetch happen. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, Crispin Agar, Laura Dreesen, Josh Hayes, Emma Alexander, and Jake Stavet Morgan. The Jodcast, October 2018 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Crispin, and joining me in the studio today are Laura Dreesen. Hey. And Josh Hayes. Hello. In the show this time. Jake Staber Morgan interviews Dr. Tony Irving about finding and studying Martian meteorites, and Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogasanu take a look at what's happening in the October night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Emma with this month's news. In the news this month, successful landings on an asteroid, matter falling into a black hole at nearly a third the speed of light, and the breakthrough prize awarded to the discoverer of pulsars, Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell-Bennell. Firstly, JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, has successfully landed rovers on the asteroid Ryugu as part of its Hayabusa 2 mission. We discussed this as an odd end in the previous episode, but we're happy to report that things have progressed and gone smoothly since then. Ryugu is only one kilometre wide and is located in the Apollo group of asteroids in our solar system. These asteroids orbit the Sun at around the same distance as the Earth or closer into the Sun and are classed as near-Earth objects. Studying asteroids can help us understand the formation of our solar system, including the origin and evolution of Earth. They are essentially leftover building materials from the formation of the solar system 4.6 billion years ago, and offer us insight into how it might have been back then. On the 21st of September, two rovers, Minerva 2, 1A and B, were released onto Ryugu's surface. They have been designed to hop across the low-gravity environment of the asteroid's surface and are carrying cameras and a thermometer. We already have some incredible dynamic shots from the rovers as they hop across the surface. We'll post links to these in the show notes. Another lander has now successfully touched down, as of recording this on the 3rd of October. MASCOT, the Mobile Asteroid Surface Scout, has already started to gather data from its instruments, which consist of a camera, a radiometer, a spectrometer and a magnetometer. However, by the time you've listened to this, Mascot will be no more. Its battery is expected to die 16 hours after touchdown. Eventually, Hayabusa 2 will collect samples from the asteroid, with the aim of bringing them back to Earth to be studied. The aim is for the spacecraft to depart in December next year, and they should be home in 2020. Next up, we have some extreme physics and super speeds. A clump of matter has recently been spotted falling directly into a black hole at almost 90,000 kilometres a second. This is nearly a third of the speed of light. The observations were made with the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton X-ray Observatory, which is in orbit around the Earth. The supermassive black hole has a mass 40 million times that of the Sun and is located in a galaxy around 1 billion light-years away. Astronomers watch the clump of matter fall into the black hole over the course of a day by looking at the different wavelengths of X-rays emitted by the material surrounding the black hole. The falling matter was notable for not having any rotation, which is usually to be expected from the rotation of accretion disks around black holes. Accretion disks consist of the matter falling into the black hole. As the matter moves closer into the black hole, its gravitational potential energy is converted into observable radiation. The study, which is published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, may be the first direct evidence for chaotic accretion in such a system. 
And finally, some news on recent prize winners. Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell has won the $3 million breakthrough prize for her discovery of pulsars, which are highly magnetised, rapidly rotating neutron stars that emit pulses of radio emission. The original discovery 50 years ago arose from her meticulous work on quasars. In fact, pulsars only made their way into the appendix of her thesis. The prize was awarded for both her scientific achievements in this field and her inspiring leadership over the past five decades. The Breakthrough Prizes, launched in 2012, are funded by entrepreneurs and are awarded in fundamental physics, life sciences and mathematics. They are usually handed out in December, based on selections made after an open nomination process. But the selection committee can decide to make special awards, bypassing the standard nomination procedure, to those they deem particularly deserving, which in the past has included the likes of Stephen Hawking and the LIGO Gravitational Wave Collaboration. Professor Bell Burnell's discovery of pulsars was also awarded the 1974 Nobel Prize in Physics, but only her supervisor was recognised. Up until this year, only two women have ever been awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics, Marie Curie and Maria Goppermeyer. That has now changed as of this month. Donna Strickland shares the 2018 prize with Arthur Ashkin and Gerard Maru for their discoveries in laser physics. So, congratulations all round. Thanks for that, Emma. And now Jake Staberg-Morgan interviews Dr. Tony Irving about finding and studying Martian meteorites. So, I am joined this morning by Dr. Tony Irving, who has come to us all the way from Washington State to talk about his research on meteorites. So, first of all, very warm welcome to the show. Thank you. So, as I understand it, you initially trained as a terrestrial geologist, is that correct? That's correct. The obvious follow-up question to that would be, what persuaded you to turn your eyes to the sky and start looking at meteorites instead? Well, I'm a geologist and not an astronomer, but I understand astronomers also have an interest in the solar system, and that includes Earth and the inner planets and, and, and asteroids and so forth. I met some meteorite collectors in 2001, and that has led to a lot of other people that I've met who are, who are collectors and, and scientists who want to work on meteorite samples as pieces of the solar system. So it's been an ongoing and growing interest. One misconception I suppose we should address at the start of this interview before we go any further. What's the difference between a meteor and a meteorite? Right. A lot of people are confused by that. It's all because of the Greek root for this word meteor, which is also, of course, used in meteorology, which is about weather, not, not space. And the root meteor refers to any sort of celestial or sky phenomenon. To the Greeks, everything including uh, lightning and rainbows and all of these sorts of things were variations of meteors, phenomena in the sky. Uh, in modern terms, a meteor is, in fact, the light that we see when something falls through the atmosphere or occasionally is seen in the upper atmosphere in meteor showers, but that's not to do with, with meteorites. So a meteorite is the rock that you find, or metal plus rocky material that you find on the ground, which represents the ground version of something that comes in from somewhere else as a meteoroid, and when it goes through the atmosphere, the friction with the atmosphere produces heating and ionized gas, and the light is what is called the meteor. So we can see a meteor, but it's not an object. So you're interested in studying the fragments that actually make it down to us on the surface. That's correct, even though most fall in the ocean. So it's probably a fair assumption to say that these things fall on the Earth pretty uniformly. They do. But as you've already said, about two-thirds of our planet is covered by ocean, so, how do we go about finding these things once they land? Are there best places to look? Well, unfortunately, England is not the best place to look because it's covered in green stuff. And, and also, most of western Washington, where I live in Seattle, is not the greatest place. So, the desert regions, the barren desert regions of the Earth, are the places where most meteorites will be apparent. Even though they occur everywhere, we won't find them easily, except in very barren places without vegetation. In addition, we need people to be searching. And although some people think you may be able to find meteorites with certain types of metal detectors or something like that, unfortunately, the majority of meteorites aren't that magnetic. What we need are eyes on the ground and time. But in a barren, pale-colored landscape like 
those in uh, Northwest Africa or in Oman or in, in Antarctica, except we don't go there all year. Those are the landscapes that darker meteoritic stones are likely to stand out. And that's where they have been found in larger numbers. So these would have been found by dedicated scientific expeditions out to yes. these sites? To Antarctica, there are uh, expeditions from uh, many governments each austral summer for a couple of months. And in other countries, there are private expeditions. But there are also indigenous or nomadic groups, mostly in Africa, that are there all the time looking for things that might be worth money. And so those then presumably find their way into the hands of scientists? Yes, via collectors in many countries that are interested in having a piece of an extraterrestrial specimen. And fortunately, many of those collectors are also armchair scientists. So the interaction between those collectors and research scientists is, is really a very good collaboration. You mentioned earlier that a lot of these objects weren't that magnetic. Right. So can you maybe talk a bit about what they're composed of, how they're made up? Well, some meteorites are very metal-rich, but those are rare. And yet, except for Martian meteorites, uh, all other meteorites pretty much contain specks of metallic iron. It turns out that earth rocks and Martian rocks are really unusual in comparison to other samples that we get because they do not contain metal. Rather, they're more oxidized and they contain iron oxides instead of iron metal. So most parts of the solar system that we know about that are solid are actually not as oxidized as our Earth rocks and uh, Martian rocks. There is slight magnetism from a mineral called magnetite, but it's not, a, it's not present in very large amounts. So you would need a very um, high precision or sensitive magnetic detector to detect Martian meteorites that way. So that's not how they're found. They're found by painstaking, searching, eyes on the ground. Is it possible to use techniques like you've just described to distinguish a Martian rock from an Earth rock? Are there certain things that we can look for? That's not the best way. The best way is detailed analysis because it turns out that Martian rocks and lunar rocks and terrestrial rocks are broadly composed of the same sorts of minerals, but those minerals have different chemical compositions in detail. So this is fortunate, so we have a quick way of testing whether something might be from one or other of those places because of uh, detailed differences in certain ratios uh, in some of the more common minerals that are easily analyzed. Minerals like olivine and pyroxene and plagioclase, which are present on all of those bodies. So luckily, in detail, those minerals have different compositions, and we can sort those specimens according to some knowledge that we have about you know, what their, what their compositions ought to be. And so how many of these specimens have we found at the moment? How many do we know of? Well, most meteorites aren't from the Moon and Mars. Most meteorites are from various parts of the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. But in my particular interest is in what we might call planetary meteorites, lunar meteorites, and Martian meteorites. And currently, there are about 150 distinct lunar meteorites and about 120 distinct Martian meteorites. But there are many, many more of certain types of meteorites from the asteroid belt that broadly would be uh, the most abundant types are called chondrites. So if you went out in the desert and found an extraterrestrial specimen, more than likely it's going to be a chondrite. To find any lunar or Martian specimen is extremely unlikely, very rare occurrence. Just looking around the tables that we have here, we're actually conducting this interview in the Petrology Lab, we have a lot of different asteroid samples that have all been cut into very thin slices. And I was just wondering, why is that done? Does that help us study these objects? Just like in standard terrestrial petrology, the study of rocks, when you have a rock sample that looks opaque to you in, in a large piece, if you cut a very thin slice, about 30 microns thick, most of the minerals become transparent and that's how we can examine them. And likewise, most extraterrestrial solid samples, we can study the same way. And uh, the microscopes that are around here are our first step in examining them. But these are also, although, although they're transparent, they're also polished. And the uh, minerals are chemically analyzed using different sorts of equipment. But we can take these little two by one inch thin sections, as we call them, and put them in an electron microprobe analyzer and measure the composition of the minerals. 
So it's a combined approach. We start with optical examination, and then we do these more detailed types of testing. Your specialist area of interest is Martian meteorites. It is. And so putting these samples under the microscopes and electron electron microprobes, what can they tell us about Mars? Can they give us some insight as to what it was like in the past? Uh, well, there's no age information obtained that way. If you want to go to the past, you have to use uh, radioactive isotopes of various sorts to measure time, uh, just as we do on Earth, with uh, developing the chronology of various events using various isotope systems that involve radioactive decay and half-lives that we know. And that is not done with these sorts of specimens, but with small solid pieces from, from the meteorites themselves that are studied by specialists in those particular fields. We can tell a lot, though, about the mineral compositions. We can't even tell that these rocks are from Mars in any of those ways. We need some other techniques to do that. Well, you mentioned in your lecture yesterday that you gave that there would be fragments of atmosphere trapped in these bodies. Could you maybe elaborate a little more on that? Right. Most of the uh, smaller objects in the solar system do not have any, well, they're not big enough to retain any sort of gaseous atmosphere around them. Now, it turns out that Mars does have a thin atmosphere, and we know the composition of the gases. It's a different sort of air on Mars compared to the Earth. On the Earth, it's it's mostly nitrogen with some oxygen and a, a small amount of other gases. On Mars, it's mostly carbon dioxide. So in detail, the gas composition, the gases that make up the Mars atmosphere, are very different from our atmosphere. The Moon has no atmosphere. So uh, a Martian rock, when it is ejected by a small asteroid impact, actually has the ability to uh, encapsulate some of the Martian air inside it. And remarkably, we can make that trapped gas escape and measure its composition in in the lab. And it turns out that that gas that's released from these meteorites matches the measured atmosphere of Mars that has been determined by landing and measuring right there on the Martian surface. So we don't have a rock from Mars yet, but we have rocks that contain trapped Martian air. And so that would then suggest that the Martian atmosphere is pretty much the same now as it was in the past because those two samples agree with each other? We don't know that for sure. What we know is that at the time that the Martian meteorites were ejected from Mars, which only goes back to 20 million years ago, that we have a match for those that have been measured between the modern atmosphere of Mars and the trapped gases in those samples. If we want to go back further than that, we don't have the sample. The samples that would have been ejected from Mars in the past before that have long since been captured by other bodies We don't have any that are older than 20 million years ago uh, or have not been ejected earlier than 20 million years ago. So, yeah, that's what we know. Have there been any samples recovered from the innermost rocky planets, Mercury and Venus? Venus is very unlikely, at least today, because we don't have large numbers of objects, fortunately, running around because Mm. they might strike the Earth and cause damage and stuff. Earlier in solar system history, there were large objects. We can see cratering on the moon and other places and the effects of that bombardment, but those have long since landed somewhere. So to eject something from even the Earth or uh, Venus today, you would have to have a very, very rapid, large object. And in, in addition, Venus has a very thick atmosphere. So we don't really expect that we would have any samples that w- would represent pieces from Venus. The only possibility would be if Venus was struck long, long ago, and some fragments of that collision were now among the many things in the asteroid belt, we then recently would have sampled some of that by other collisions. But right now, there's no meteorite that we have, or that we know about, that is plausibly related to Venus, as far as we can guess. We do, on the other hand, have at least two that may, question mark, be related to Mercury. Dynamical calculations show that it's possible that pieces from Mercury could be ejected and arrive and land on Earth, although many would go into the Sun. Some may have landed on Earth. At least they would have escaped Mercury, which also does not have an atmosphere. The problem there is that, unlike Mars, we wouldn't have any trapped gases to try and connect to the Mercury situation because there's no atmosphere to compare with. So until we get an actual rock sample returned from Mercury, we won't know whether these two rare rocks are really from there 
or from some other place that's somewhat like it, possibly long destroyed. Well, you mentioned getting rock samples from other bodies, and that's clearly important to compare to the ones that make it down to us. Yes. So, going to the moon briefly, how do the lunar meteorites that we found compare to the lunar samples that were brought back by the Apollo missions? Apollo and the Russian Luna, L-U-N-A, lunar ah, yes. missions. Don't forget those. And now new probable sample return by Chinese missions in the near future. And, and some private missions are in, in the works as well, I should point out. The Apollo samples are uh, pretty important, and that gives us a very good ground truth, so to speak, to compare the lunar meteorites generally with samples that we actually collected and brought back from the moon. On the other hand, the landed missions are only for specific places, whereas the meteorites must have been ejected from many different places on the moon, on the backside, but we don't know where. So we have more samples, more coverage, but we don't have any address for where they came from. So we can't trace their specific locations just yet? No, no. Nor can we do that for Mars. So although the meteorites in both cases are very important samples, there still is great value in going and either doing orbital missions or even maybe landing missions, whether with people or with rovers, to add to this uh, knowledge base. Well, Mars is still a target of increasing study for rovers and such. We've got Curiosity roving around at the moment. We've got the ExoMars rover, <laughs> which is going to be coming up at some point in the next decade. Do you anticipate those being useful for your field? Oh, e everything is useful. Although I think having an actual solid sample is the most useful thing because in contrast to a remote laboratory or rover situation, we can apply all of the detailed testing that we can do in a lab on Earth if we actually have a sample of any size. And uh, whereas if, if you have a, a remote mission, you have to plan in advance what you can do and, and how you're going to handle the sample. Mm -hmm. And also there are things that you cannot do, at least currently, uh, on a remote mission. You can't measure the age of the rock, for example, very well. In contrast, a sample brought back to Earth can be dated very, very accurately. So, I'm guessing that would be your dream Martian mission then, to bring a piece back. Of course. Any samples are going to be very important. I, I hope that, that there will be a return mission. Now, whether those samples will match the Martian meteorites that we have now remains to be seen. It wouldn't be too surprising if there's a variety of rocks on Mars, but short of Mars geologists going up there and doing what we've done on the Earth, I think eventually that will happen, but it might be a while. Yeah, but it looks like there's, there's still a lot more to be done. Well, and in the meantime, the number of Martian meteorites continued to grow. It wasn't that long ago that we only had half the number, and I expect that there'll be more, you know, we seem to be getting four or five per year, mostly from Northwest African countries. So that's quite a few, actually. That's more than I was expecting. It's more than most people expect, so I'm not complaining. Certainly not. Well, I'm conscious of the fact that you have a morning microscope session to prepare for. Okay, so Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that, Jake. Now we come to the part of the show where we try to squish in all those bits that we can't fit anywhere else. The odds and ends. I'm going to start this week. So this week I'm going to talk about a discovery made by someone right here at the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. Cha Min Tan is a PhD student here at the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics, and he's made a really cool pulsar discovery. So just as a really quick backstory, I'll define what a pulsar is again. I'm sure we've talked about pulsars many, many times, but just in case someone's forgotten. Um, a pulsar is a type of neutron star. A neutron star is a really small, dense star that's about the, about a radius of 12 kilometers and a mass about 1.5 times that of the sun. Uh, they're made when a large star with a high mass uh, evolves to the end of its life and explodes, and what's left over is a neutron star or sometimes a black hole. In this case, we're interested in neutron stars. A pulsar is a type of neutron star that spins and has beams of light coming out of it. So as it spins, if the beam of light passes what we can see, then we see it as a flash every time it spins around. So uh, I have some, so th this is a really interesting discovery. I'm just going to talk about one or two things in the paper, but we put a link to the paper in the show notes and to the New Scientist article about this paper so that because there's heaps of really cool things, but we only have time for a couple. So the shortest 
period of a pulsar is 1.4 milliseconds. So that means the shortest known period of a pulsar, so the, the shortest time it takes for one pulsar to spin around completely is 1.4 milliseconds. So that means that that pulsar spins around 714 times in one second. But until this paper, the, the slowest pulsar spun around only once in 12.1 seconds. So that's a paper that's still in, in progress, but that's the, the slowest pulsar before this paper. But what Charmin did is took the LOFAR telescope, which is the low-frequency array based in the Netherlands, but spread out all across Europe, uh, and found a pulsar that has a period of 23.5 seconds. That's really long. Yes. So this pulsar spins around once every about 24 seconds, which is crazy slow for a pulsar. That's like double the slowest period until now. So like for what what for context, what are the fastest ones that we know of? So the fastest one is one point four milliseconds that it takes to spin around. So it spins around once every one point four milliseconds. Okay, so this is more than a thousand times slower. Yes. Yeah. More than really ten thousand times slower. Ten thousand times slower than the fastest known pulsar. So So it's really slow. So with this like massive range in spin period, is this is this still a pulsar as we know it, or is this perhaps something new, new and exciting in astrophysics? Well, it is. It's sort of a, a bit of both. I mean, it's not crazy to have slow pulsars, but this one is so slow that by the this, I suppose, standard theory, it shouldn't exist. So that's a really interesting thing about this pulsar. So uh, with pulsars, we look at their period. So that's how long it takes to complete one full rotation, and we also look at something called their p dot, and that's the deceleration. So pulsars over over time, the time it takes them to take one rotation slows down. So the P dot is a measure of how fast they're slowing down, which is totally not confusing at all. (laughs) Oh, so that's that change in period. Yeah, exactly. So how the the period changes over time. And most pulsars, you know, all of them have a P dot. But we we put them on this diagram that's called the PP dot diagram. So that's the period on one axis and the P dot on the other axis. And most pulsars are in kind of a big clump in the middle altogether. But on that, on that diagram, we draw a line called the death line. And using the current known theories about radio pulsars, we expect all the pulsars to kind of be on the left side in this diagram. We expect them all to be above that death line. Uh, but this pulsar is below some death lines. So there's multiple death lines because we don't really understand pulsars. <laughs> so radio pulsars in particular, we don't actually know where the light is coming from and what how it's produced. So these death lines are based on a few different theories. So there's, I think, the kind of the, the ones that are discussed in here, there might be four different death lines, three or four different death lines that are discussed. Um, but this pulsar particularly is on the wrong side of the most commonly accepted death line. So that's extra interesting because it means that we can discount that theory that produced that death line. So this pulsar, by just by existing, has helped us narrow down the number of theories that we have about what, what pulsars can exist, basically. So, so are death lines absolute? So I've, I've, I've seen PP dot diagrams that have death lines drawn on them and there are, there are, there are, there are pulsars plotted beyond that. I like I so I mean I yeah. you two are both pulsar experts so actually, I I, <laughs> I feel so. like I can yes. well pick your brains <laughs> a bit here. Yeah. But. <laughs> um, well, I think I think death lines certain death lines correspond to different theories of how pulsars actually emit radiation. Um, so, for example, a sort of I don't know canonical, if you will, in the literature way of emitting radiation is the really strong magnetic fields of the pulsars. Basically, coupled with the rotation, uh, that induces massive electric fields above the magnetic poles. So, sort of abo- like above the north and south pole on Earth, and that those electric fields pull particles off the surface, pull electrons, and they can actually create electron-positron pairs out of the vacuum. They're so strong, and it's the acceleration of those charged particles along the magnetic field lines that that give rise to what we detect as the radio emission. Um, because this, I think, I think it's right to say that because this pulsar is so slow, that theory then doesn't work. So it, it lies below that death line. So the fields are not strong enough to create, create the radiation under that theory. So. Yeah, exactly. So, so these death lines are definitely not final. They're just the best ideas that we have at the moment for how the emission mechanisms, so how the light comes out of the pulsar, basically. Um, so, 
we don't know for sure, but it helps because usually we have, for things that we don't know, we usually have multiple theories. And by observing different things, we can hopefully cut down the number of theories that we have. So that's pretty much what this pulsar has done. There were multiple theories on where this death line is and the emission mechanisms of the light of pulsars. And by having, by observing this pulsar, by this pulsar just existing, it cuts out some theories. Yeah. So that's just an interesting thing in science is, is kind of how it works, that we, we have multiple theories and then by observations, particularly astronomy, I mean, different sciences work in different ways where you're trying to actually prove a theory. But in this particular case, we're cutting out theories using this particular pulsar. So it's just a really, I mean, I think when they first saw it, they thought they, they detected it in sort of a different harmonic. So pulse periods have harmonics. Um, and they, so they thought it was faster, I think. Um, yes, I believe it, it was slower. about, they thought it was maybe twice as fast. Yeah. So they thought it was going faster, but then by actually having a look at the data, they, they noticed that they were actually kind of counting things a bit off. Yeah. So they thought they found something that was, the slowest one ever, and then it turns out that it was twice as slow as that anyway. Pretty much. I don't know I'm sure if it was twice as slow, but yeah, it was It was kind of slow already, and I think that's why they took the extra time to have a bit of a look at it, and they were like, oh, hang on, it's actually more interesting and cool and slower than we thought it was. So it's it's really nice. And this is, as I said, this is a low-far telescope, which we have quite a few people working with that one here, particularly on pulsars, but also on imaging. Um, and it's a really huge telescope in the kind of radio astronomy way that it has it's each antenna is tiny i think josh and crispin would both be taller than the lba antennas i don't think yeah, I'm but, but to be fair antennas. we are both 74 meters tall each yes yeah, true so true so yeah, that's not really much yeah. of a measure um <laughs> and the and the hba antennas so it's, it's split into two parts low band and high band and the high band antennas i mean they're tiny about knee height um, but they're spread out all across Europe. Like there's a station in Poland and one, I think, in Ireland, I think. Yeah, there's, th- yeah, they're from they're... Ireland all the way across to. Aren't, aren't they just basically coat hangers that they've shoved in the ground? Yeah, or washing yeah. lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. So, so to, to make a discovery and, and uh, I think LOFAR's come up with so many in this particular pulsar search program, they've discovered many, many new pulsars, all of which are interesting in their own right, but this one particularly <laughs> is, is extra interesting. And the, the other, the one other thing that I want to talk about with this one just quickly is that they actually could pinpoint the location of it because they also had imaging data. So at the same time, well, actually not at the same time that, uh, they had a low fast survey doing imaging, um, and using that survey because they kind of had a bit of an idea of where it was. They, pinpointed an image and i think they got uh, a few arc second localizations so that's really that's really nice the moon is 30 arc minutes so it's yeah it, yeah so you're 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 seeing very very well where it is so they yeah. were yeah they were able to if you were continuing the moon they were able to say not only which crater it was in but like where exactly in the crater it was yeah exactly if you're thinking of the size of the moon yeah. so that's just an extra plus to this um, but I really recommend reading uh, the New Scientist article on this one, and if you're interested in even more detail, because they, they did a, a more thorough investigation than we've discussed here, but it's just a really nice new discovery um, that, that has a special interest to the Pulsar community. Thank you, Laura. And now it's Josh's turn. Oh, odds right. And ends. Uh, right, so, so my odd and end is um, all about space goblins. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be so authentic. I know, right? Um, <laughs> do you mean actual little green people, or are you talking about something else, and or you're going mad? Um, I mean, all of those seem li- quite plausible. A, a, a little bit of all of them. Mm. Um, I wish I was talking about little green people. Um, unfortunately, we've not yet found extraterrestrial life. Um, instead, what has been discovered is a rock. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what sort of a rock, Josh? This is a dwarf planet. Um, called 2015 TG387, uh, but it's been, it's been called the Goblin, uh, because of the initials TG and the fact that it was discovered in, on Halloween in 2015. Um, and obviously TG, Halloween, obviously the Goblin. 
Um, so I see you fleshed out your story a lot more. Now. I have fleshed, it's almost like I've done this on the BBC since we last first attempted it's to do this. Almost tech. like that. Um, <laughs> are we going to tell people that we recorded this a week earlier? Oh, hello again. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah. We're all having deja vu in this uh, yeah, if, studio. Yeah, if, if, if the sound quality sounds like it's changed mid episode, or our voices, or our voices, <laughs> yeah. and like our general demeanour, um, it's because this is the second time we've recorded this because our recorder broke the first time we tried to do this and today's a monday so i mean today's right. a monday today's a monday yeah so if we're a little bit less upbeat maybe it's because of Hooray. that well, <laughs> I, I mean like mondays i i prefer monday afternoon to friday at six or whatever it was whenever we recorded that, that is true we did but then it was just before wednesday wasn't it four. just before no it was wednesday it was just before Half we watched the wednesday. movies that was good. oh yeah no that was yeah it. anyway um we digress. Um, <laughs> back to goblins. So, back to goblins. Um, so, this is a dwarf planet uh, which op- uh, which operates, orbits. Uh, this is a dwarf planet which orbits at um, its closest approach. Its perihelion is 65 astronomical units. So, for comparison, Pluto it gets furthest away at 49.3 AU. So, this is definitely beyond Pluto. In fact, it's considerably beyond Pluto because it goes out as far as 23,000 astronomical units. So, so is this, is this an object that's been captured by our, our sun or is this formed in orbit like, like the other planets? So we don't really know very much actually about the object itself beyond the fact that it's there. Um, so it's definitely in our system, in our solar system. So they, um, Scott Shepard, who was the lead of this, um, they, he's, like the group have, uh, they initially saw it uh, in October 2015, um, but have spent three more years refining the orbit. So it's definitely part of our system, um, and it's probably about 300 kilometers across. But and it's probably spherical, um, but that's about all we know. So it's really, really faint. Um, okay. Even the diameter of 300 kilometers is an estimate based off how much light they've seen reflected from it. There's been no spectroscopy, we've no idea what it's made of, like nothing, we just know it's there at this point. Um, but so it's... how long does it take to go around the sun? Oh, Compared yeah. Compared to Pluto as well. Compa- well, so it takes 40,000 Earth years. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> it's decent. Which, which is many. <laughs> Pluto takes only 248 years. So oh, okay, so like a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, yeah. lot longer <laughs> um, than, than Pluto, yeah. So... Yeah. They, like they, this, this object. The reason I brought this in is not just because it's got a cool name and it's a rock that's really far away. It's because of where it is. Um, so there are a bunch of dwarf planets and like far out solar system objects that um, scientists have been mapping for a while. And the problem, or not so much the problem, but what's been observed is that they have a bias towards orbiting in one particular direction. So their orbits are all very elliptical, and you would naively expect them to be isotropically distributed, perhaps like in the plane, but you'd expect them to be sort of like a spirograph. In reality, they're all kind of shifted and like beamed towards one direction. And the reason that that's really interesting is because in order for so many objects that have been found, so there's about six or seven that have been found and they, like, they're all in this general direction in order for them to be like this um, there needs to be something big out the other way and so this is actually being seen as like some really crucial evidence for the potential existence of Planet Nine in our solar system Is the reason though that we only see them all on one side because that's the only side we're looking at? No so these, um, so these surveys that were done on, uh, which found the goblin and a couple of others, um, were complete full sky. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing because it's much harder to look for small objects on the side of Earth <laughs> that has the Milky Way on it. Yes. So um, even if you've looked across the whole sky, doesn't mean that you have an equal chance across the whole sky of finding small objects. No, but every ob- so this this has been taken into account. So mm-hmm. within the survey, and Shepard himself has has spoken about this. Mm-hmm. Um, they it, it is a uniform survey. It's a uniform sky survey, and yes, there is a band of the Milky Way. But even within, like, if it were isotropically distributed, mm-hmm. you would still expect to find some, like, say, out of the plane, yeah. if you will, because we're not like our. Oh, 
our, pla- our planetary orbit is not the same plane as yeah. the Milky Way's orbit. So you would yeah. expect to find them elsewhere. The ecliptic, yeah. The, yeah, ecliptic, the ecliptic is not Thank at you, the that, same that's angle. The, that's the word I'm looking for there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just from a sort of practical perspective, this thing's orbiting uh, with a period of what? Stupid number of thousands of 40, years. 40,000 years. 40, years. So uh, from night to night, it moves, well, to all intents and purposes, not at all. So how, how, f- if you're searching for these things, how yeah. do you associate this tiny, maybe one pixel in your image with something that's within our solar system as opposed to, say, a so, transient source passing yeah. through or in the background? Yeah, so what, um, th- this was actually discovered in one night. So there were two images taken three hours apart and all the stars are compared. And then if something's moved, we know that it's much closer to us or something, yes. something's going on or it's playing or something. <clears throat> but, um, so this was originally discovered in two images just taken three hours apart. So it does move fast enough for okay. us to actually do anything with because that, but that probably because it's kind of, it's quite close at the moment. Right. So on its orbit, relative to us, it seems to be moving much faster um, across the sky. Whereas if it's way, way out at its aphelion, um, then it hardly moves at all. Right. Um, so we, we've been lucky enough to catch it at the appropriate time. And because the orbits of these things are so long, um, it probably means there's loads we're missing. Right, um, yes. we haven't seen. Um, but yeah, like this, this, is, this is some interesting evidence, potentially, for Planet 9. Um, which is not the same as Planet X, um, <laughs> but sort of also is because some people use the, them interchangeably. But um, Planet X was a theorised planet that was needed to account for some irregularities that were predicted in uh, Uranus's orbit. Right. But then were it turned out once we had space-based observatories that they weren't actually there. I see. Um, but yeah, that's me done. Okay. Nice. Thank you for that, Josh. We've had a bit of feedback over the last few weeks that people want to hear what's happening in our own backyard, so to speak, what's happening at Jodrell Bank. So we thought we'd bring back a section of the show which occasionally makes appearance, the Jod Watch. The Jod Watch. With various sort of... <laughs> I refuse to participate. <laughs> <laughs> we, need to, we need to decide on a theme tune for that. Yeah. Um, so Maybe, yes. I mean, so that the Simpsons don't come down our heads. I, I mean, I think Crispin and I sung that yeah. so irrecognisably that we, we are not in That's with true. Any. It's amazing <laughs> that I could even identify which theme song it was like, partially like. It was a harmony. It was intentional. <laughs> sure. But anyway. I think the phrase is discord, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so what's happening at Jodrell? Well, we've sort of been in a, a period of maintenance and general spring cleaning, even though it's October, but... Spring cleaning. It's spring somewhere. Spring somewhere. I can tell you exactly where the Southern Hemisphere. Thank you. I'm a scientist. Thank you, I'm token Australian. (laughs) (laughs) I knew there was a reason we had you on. Um, So yes, the Mark IIs. So over the past sort of, well, for a while, let's just say, there's been something funky going on with the Mark II. Um, So it's sort of hysteresis in that, so the tracking, following um, a source in the sky, tracking up versus tracking down. There's sort of a, a lag, if you will, in where the telescope's actually pointing. Um, so the Mark II's sort of been taken apart and had to look at it, and it's been found that this is a mechanical fault with the elevation encoder. Um, so the engineers went to pull that out and discovered that actually it's sort of been pushed against the side of its housing and is under a bit of pressure. So they popped that out, fixed it all, shoved it back in, and now the telescope's working again. Yep, Yay. so it's pointing where we actually think it's pointing, which is excellent. <laughs> which is usually a good thing for science. Yep, yep. So we just need to do a little bit of calibration of that and get a nice new pointing model. And that will, well, is probably due to be done this week, mm-hmm. which for you Jodcast listeners is last week, probably. But this is this is science. Time, time so is always nebulous on the Jodcast. Time yeah. is illusion. Um, so yeah, Mark II is looking nice. Yeah, yeah, and I think we've we've had a little bit of other maintenance. Yeah. Some paint jobs. Some paint jobs. The 42 foot is looking beautifully sparklingly white. We've uh, had a proper go at that. Mm-hmm. It's, the... it's kind of blinding on a sunny day now. <laughs> it is gorgeous. It looks brand new. Has the 7 meter been Yeah, I think, I think the 7 meter, at least it had a clean. I'm not sure if it had yeah. a paint, but it's, the it's a bit The power wash the 7 meter. So that's the undergraduate lab 
telescope. Um, that's nice and shiny again. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. Aunt Holloway's Anthony Holloway has put up a few pretty nice photos actually of the forty-two foot oh, with its new paint and a sunset. It's very nice. Nice. So you can probably find those photos if not a link to them on the website. Uh, the level itself is still under scaffolding, although that's due to come down soon. So yes, that just about wraps it up for the Jod Watch this week. The, the Jod Watch. That was worse. That was definitely worse. And now, from a cupboard somewhere in Britain's leading radio observatory, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky, October 2018. Well, let's just have a look at a, a view of the heavens. Up fairly high, but now moving a bit over towards the west, can be seen the summer triangle. Although perhaps it's now getting on for autumn, isn't it? Uh, Altair in Aquila, Vega in Lyra, and Deneb in Cygnus. It's a lovely region of the Milky Way. Down to its left, and due south in the evening, is the square of Pegasus, part of the winged horse. That actually gives a nice way to find the Andromeda galaxy, one of two. If you start at the top left-hand corner, it's called Alpha Rats, Move one fairly bright star to the left, bend round a bit to another bright star, then turn through 90 degrees to a slightly fainter star, and the same distance again, you should see with binoculars or even your eyes on a very dark night, the misty glow of M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. The photons that are being recorded on your retina left there about two and a half million years ago. Now, above Pegasus, again in the northern part of the Milky Way, is the constellation of Cassiopeia, a rather open W shape. And in fact, the right-hand V of Cassiopeia points down, in fact, towards Andromeda. And if you carry the same distance again beyond Andromeda, you'll actually come to M33 in Triangulum. A little bit further along the northern Milky Way is the rather nice constellation of Perseus, with the eclipsing binary star, the demon star, called Algon. Now that part of the Milky Way isn't as bright as that um, towards the south, because we're looking out out of our Milky Way galaxy rather than in towards it. On the night sky, just night sky jodrel, you'll find that this month I've put the image of the month is my photograph of this part of the Milky Way taken from a very dark site in Kerry in Southern Ireland. And it shows these constellations and Andromeda and M33. And I put it there partly because there's obviously no copyright problems, which I have sometimes trouble with. But secondly, to try and point you to my Astronomy Digest, there's a link just above that picture, because there I've put a very extensive article on how that image was processed, and uh, it might be of some use to some of you. Um, There's now about 50 articles in that digest, and I hope some of them could be interesting. So do join the, oh, a thousand or so people that are currently looking at it every month. So what about the planets? Well, Jupiter really is past its best. You can see it low in the west soon after sunset at the start of the month. It's shining at magnitude minus 1.8, has a disk some 32.6 arc seconds across. Its equatorial bands, sometimes the great red spot, though it's not quite so great now, and up to four of its Galilean moons should be visible in a small telescope. But sadly, of course, the low elevation will greatly hinder our view. Saturn. Well, Saturn is still around. It'll be visible in the southwest at an elevation of about 14 degrees after sunset at the beginning of October. Its disk has an angular size of 16.5 arc seconds, falling to 15.7 during the month. As that happens, the brightness also reduces from plus 0.5 to plus 0.6 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest last year, but they are still well open and span about 2.5 times the size of Saturn's globe. Saturn is now moving slowly eastwards in Sagittarius, which is towards the very bottom of the ecliptic, and so the elevations are not high, and the atmosphere obviously limits our view. 
Well, Mercury, shining at magnitude minus 0.2, with an angular diameter of about six arc seconds, might just be spotted very low in the west at the very end of the month. I think binoculars could well be needed, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Look up and to the left of where the sun has set, as the angular separation from the sun is not that great. Well, Mars is now racing eastwards in Capricornus. You know it made its closest approach to Earth since 2003, at the end of July. It can still be seen in the south, shining at magnitude about minus 1.3, around 9pm at the start of October. That falls to minus 0.6 by month's end, when it's due south about an hour earlier. Its angular size is 16 arc seconds, that falls to about 12 by the beginning of November. And so with a small telescope, it should be possible to spot details such as Certis Major on its salmon pink surface. From the UK, it will only reach an elevation of about 14 degrees. And there are things called atmospheric dispersion correctors that can help improve our view. There's also a superb program called WinDupos, and that's for free. And you can use that to find out precisely what you hope to see on any particular night. And of course, now the dust storm that obscured the surface in late June, July has receded. Well, Venus is not visible from the UK this month. It'll be seen low in the east just before sunrise by about the middle of next month. So finally, what about the highlights? Well, as I've mentioned, it's still worth observing Mars. You can still look for details, and as I said, the free program WinDupos will show you what's visible on the Martian surface. Now, two of the outer planets, the ice giants. October is a very good month to observe Uranus with binoculars or a small telescope. As it comes into opposition, that's when it's nearest to the Earth, on the 23rd of October. So it'll be well placed both this month and next. Its magnitude is plus 5.7, so Uranus with a disk such 3.7 arc seconds across should be easily spotted in binoculars, lying in the constellation of Aries, but close, in fact, to the borders of Cetus and Pisces. And the nice thing is it rises to an elevation of about 47 degrees when due south. So finding it with a small telescope, it will appear as a small turquoise-coloured disk. Now, on the night of closest approach, it will actually lie up to the left of a near full moon. So that would make it easier to find, but probably actually not visible in the glare of the moonlight. And I have put a chart on the website to show you how to find it. Now, October is still a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It actually came into opposition last month on the 7th. It's still well placed this month. Its magnitude is plus 7.9, its disk just 2.3 arc seconds across. So it can be spotted in binoculars lying in the constellation Aquarius up to the left of Lambda Aquarii, as I show on the chart on the night sky page. And again, it's not too bad. It rises to an elevation of 27 degrees when due south. Now, given a telescope of 8 inches or greater to aperture, and a dark, transparent night around new moon, perhaps on the 9th, it should even be possible to spot its moon, Triton. Well, there is a comet we could look for this month. In the early morning, it's called Comet Jacobini Zinner. It was first discovered by Michael, or Michael, Jacobini in December 1900. Then it was actually rediscovered by Ernst Zinner some 6.5 times later so they've given us a joint name. The nucleus is about two kilometres across. I've actually put a chart on the website that shows approximately where it is during the month. There's a nice little asterism, usually called the coat hanger, which lies between Altair in Aquila and Vega in Lara. And again, I'll show you how to find that on the website. On the 11th of October, after sunset, Jupiter lies below a thin crescent moon. Now it's going to be very low. You'd need a very low western horizon. Probably you'd need to use binoculars, but again, please don't use them until after the sun has set. On the 14th of October, after sunset, Saturn appears to the left of a waxing crescent moon. 
so if it's clear after sunset, looking southwest, one should be able to see Saturn just over to the left, and with the moon it should look quite nice. On the 18th of October, Mars is close to the first quarter moon. Quite close, in fact. It might make quite a nice photo opportunity. And finally, I always do a little bit about the moon. I put up a picture I took of the full moon, and I've annotated it with the names of the moon's Maria. So it might be worth just having a look at that, so you can spot them with binoculars, or even sometimes with your unaided eyes. So we've got some darker nights now, which is great. I do hope some of them are clear. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's the returning voice of Night Sky South, Haratina Mogasanu. Welcome to October. This is New Zealand Night Sky, and I'm Haritina Mogasanu from Space Place at Carter Observatory. It's great to be back on the broadcast with more stories and wonders of the Southern Hemisphere sky. It's been the winter of the planets here in the Southern Hemisphere, and spring has continued the theme. October is still offering a great chance to see many of the fantastic planetary sights that we've become accustomed to over the winter. The start of October sees the sun setting just after 7.30 in the evening as the nights are starting to get shorter and daylight savings has made astronomers stay up an hour extra to view the night sky. The early evening sky is dominated first by Venus and then by Jupiter as darkness falls. Both of the planets start the month in Libra with Venus heading towards the sun in Virgo by the end of the month. Jupiter is joined by Mercury from the 27th of October for a few days, though it will be a real challenge to see very low on the horizon just after the sun has set at about 15 degrees, so Kiwis will have to head to the coast or climb up some of the high hills to have a chance of a fleeting view of Mercury. Unfortunately, the situation is the same for Jupiter, the planet that has been with us since autumn. It's getting lower and lower in the sky and will make for challenging viewing. Marching up the ecliptic, Saturn is still in Sagittarius and its rings are at a great tilt to view them. A modest telescope and good seeing should reveal the Cassini division. Also in Sagittarius is Pluto, though at a magnitude of 14.3, it's going to be quite a challenge to see unless you've got your hands on a bigger telescope. And even then, at around 0.1 arc seconds across, it's only going to look like a faint star. The dominant planet of the night sky remains Mars in Capricornus and at minus 0.7 magnitude by the end of October, it's still going to be very bright and easy to spot, even if you've got to put up with a lot of light pollution. By the end of October, Mars is around 114 million kilometers away, which is considerably further away than it is at the start of the month, which is 89 million kilometers, showing how fast Earth and Mars are separating. The start of the month will be great for viewing Mars, as it will still be close enough to make out some detail. That is, if the seeing is right and the dust storm that silenced the rover Opportunity has long subsided, and hopefully we'll hear from Opportunity by October. The evening sky has one more planet for the keen astronomer with binoculars or telescopes, and that's Neptune, the eight planets from the Sun, which we can find in Aquarius. At 7.8 magnitude, it will be easy to spot and will appear as a very small bluish disk. Neptune is a long way away at over 4.3 billion kilometers, that is 242 light minutes or just about 4 light hours away. This time of the year is one of my favorite for viewing deep sky objects and a great place to start is with the Southern Cross and work your way up the Milky Way. Or the other way around, to find the Southern Cross, turn away from the ecliptic and just follow the Milky Way all the way to the two pointers, Alpha and Beta Centauri. We are so lucky here that we can see the Milky Way. There are some great nebulae in it and really beautiful open clusters. In the Southern Cross is one of the most fantastic clusters in the night sky, the Jewel Box Cluster, also known as NGC 4755. 
This little gray cluster has three stars in a line that look a bit like a traffic light, two blue and one red in the middle. The reddish looking star is a red supergiant about 19 times the mass of the sun. To the right of the Saturn Cross is the huge Omega Centauri globular cluster, which at magnitude of 3.7 can be seen by the naked eye. Omega Centauri is the competitor to 47 Tucana globular cluster, which is not located in the Milky Way, but in Tucana, in the sub-celestial circumpolar part of the sky, along with the Magellanic clouds. Back to the Milky Way and following up past Alpha Centauri, there is the sting of Scorpius, which is home to the Cat's Paw Nebula, also known as NGC 6334. It's quite faint, but some of the nebula can be seen. Astrophotographers will get a lot of detail. Just up the Milky Way from the sting is M7, also known as Ptolemy Cluster. This amazing cluster is visible with the naked eye, but through a reasonable telescope, it's very impressive against the backdrop of the star clouds. The cluster has about 80 stars in it. Towards the horizon from M7 is the other amazing southern hemisphere site, the Milky Way Kiwi. Right at the center of the Milky Way, a spectacular bird guards the center of our galaxy. This is the Milky Way Kiwi, a shape made from dark dust within our own galaxy. More than 10 years ago, astrophotographers from New Zealand were taking snapshots of the night sky. One of them looked at the pictures and realized that a dark patch known in the Northern Hemisphere as the Dark Horse, being upside down here, looked just like a great galactic kiwi bird. But, as I realized later while traveling, you either have to be from New Zealand or have friends in New Zealand to even know what a kiwi bird looks like. The Milky Way Kiwi is my absolute favorite object in the sky and once I saw it with the naked eye from Lake Tekapo in the South Island. And if you were wondering, the direction of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy is right on the top of the head of the Milky Way Kiwi, just like a jewel on a crown. Since I talked about my favorite object in the sky, the Milky Way Kiwi, I will also mention my least favorite object in the sky, the moon, because it casts way too much light at night. But hey, people drive on it, so that actually makes the moon very cool, apart from the light situation. The moon here is obviously upside down to the Northern Hemisphere, and according to New Zealand kids, has a big rabbit inside it. You can see its ears are Mare Fecunditatis and Mare Nectaris, the head is Mare Tranquillitatis, and the tummy is Mare Serenitatis. Behold the rabbit hole at Mare Crisium. Not only that there is this rabbit inside the moon, but the moon itself is to be found on the northern part of the sky, as everything else here near the ecliptic in this hemisphere, and facing the ecliptic, East is to the right and west is to the left. That makes the shadows in the morning look like the evening shadows from the other hemisphere and it feels like morning in the evening and evening in the morning until the brain engages back. So if you ever come visit us, don't let them tell you it is only jet lag. This concludes our podcast for October 2018 from Space Place at Carter Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. Thank you to the amazing Sam Lesky of Milky Way Kiwi who contributed to the content. Good night and have a great October. Thanks for that, Haratina. Now, we've got some feedback. Um, yeah, we've had an email. Oh, um, had a, yes, yes, we have had an email. This email comes in from Penny Jackson who says, Hi, Jodcast. I love the new studio. Previously, I had trouble hearing your show even with my laptop speakers on full volume. Now I can actually take more than two paces away and still hear it clearly. I notice it also picks up background noise like police cars, but I'd rather have that than it being too quiet. You maybe also be able to hear some, some clicking, which yes. we're not entirely sure where yeah, it's we, coming we don't from. Know. We've, we've worked out that if we lean on one of the walls, it stops for a bit and then and then starts again elsewhere in the room. It's like trying to, like you know those scenes in movies where there's a hole in a pipe and you just put your finger over it and then another leak emerges. It's like doing that. Sure, yeah, it's like that. Comedy relief. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Penny also says, I love your segments on the politics and people of science. Keep them up. 
We definitely will because as astronomers, we're people too. (laughs) And the politics and especially, I mean, I'm sure people have heard recently about quite a bit of politics in particle physics um, and astronomy. So maybe that'll be for another show. Yeah. Yes, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) We also had some Facebook posts, I think, if Josh is ready for that. Yes, we did have some Facebook posts, but I forgot to get them up. Josh was not ready. Okay, we'll go to Twitter then instead. I've got a a, a little Twitter note from Bill or at Bill underscore GK um, that says, thanks for the September extra episode. Sound quality excellent. Well done. It's because we're in our fancy new studio. It's really nice. Except for the ticking, which is... Except for the ticking. I'm trying really hard on the soundboard as well, so you can blame me and or our show editor. If it's wrong, probably blame Definitely me because blame, blame me. I'm going to say blame me because otherwise Adam's going to cut me to sound really bad. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> he's going to cut you. Yes, yes. Um, I am terrified of Adam. Um, he is your evolution. He is my evolution. It's mm. um, there is a yeah. Be we'll post that photo yeah. on Facebook we, we, or Twitter yeah. just for context, so the, you know what we're talking about. I was going to say, be careful where this conversation <laughs> yes. goes. There, there, there used to be a photo that existed of myself. Uh, Adam Averson and uh, Tim O'Brien that just we stood next to each other and it just looks like the evolution of an astronomer it's quite entertaining anyway sorry Facebook. you were saying Facebook. Facebook Facebook that's what we were doing uh, in response to the picture of Jake myself and Naomi um, setting up the studio uh, Mark Hayworth has suggested that we have open days a small tea shop for visitors and souvenirs for purchase um I mean, no. I feel like we already have enough to do, <laughs> but we, sure. We have enough to do, and we don't have enough branded things for ourselves. Yeah. Um, also, but, we don't have any money. We're students. Yeah, we haven't. Um, yeah. Yeah, we have no money. Yeah. Um, you can give them bits of the studio. Here, yeah. We, we've got, oh, we've got heaps of whiteboard markers. There's yeah. a thumbtack here. If Yeah? You, the, the, you can have a Jodrell Bang thumbtack. We could always get Emma to do more artwork and sell prints. Yeah. Yeah. You um, could donate money and get your name written on the Jodcast whiteboard. <laughs> Yes, that I mean, is an excellent idea. we have two whole whiteboards. See, oh, yes. <laughs> Crispin has only just noticed the other whiteboard. I sit with my back to it. <laughs> he also doesn't use his eyes. Mm-hmm. I also don't use my eyes. Um, anyway, yeah, um, we, like, all of this said, we really want to get involved more with you lot. Um, so, given that we now have the studio and we now have all the equipment, um, we really hope, well, we're looking at the moment to do a Jodcast Live. We do not have a date. And we have no idea when this will be, but we are looking into it. And hopefully we will do one soon because we really want to do one. Yeah, that would be awesome. Good fun. Finally, we, uh, we've got uh, a comment from ja- uh, Jake Hoyft who has asked, um, after setting everything up in working order, how many cables did we have left that we're not quite sure what they were used for? Um, the main assumption here is that we set up everything working. Yep, and that we kept track of cables. Yeah, uh, we have no idea. Mm-mm. Nope. There's a whole box sat behind Josh full of stuff. I don't know what stuff. I kind of went through it. I don't know what half of it does. Mm. It's great. Everything's working, though, and everything's great, so yeah. we figure it's fine. Nothing's yeah. caught fire. Yep. And this is... Yet. This, for me, is, like, the base level of working. Yeah. If it's not on fire, it's probably fine, unless it's unless a it's, fire. Unless it's supposed to be on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah If it's yeah, supposed exactly. to be on fire, then... I mean, there is this wall-ticking business that's going on, but I'm... otherwise, the studio is working great. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. If you use Flickr, we're at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And if you want to send us a postcard, we love receiving postcards. They're all over the walls mm-hmm. and all over our windows at the moment. Um, so please do, uh, and you can send us them. Uh, the address is on the website. Yep. So that wraps it up for this month's episode. Thanks to Jake Staber Morgan for the interview. The editors were Adam Averson, Shruti Badol, Emma Alexander, and Tom Scrag. The producer was Naomi Asambre Frimpong. Until next time, Jordan. Somebody once told me the word. Are oh, you recording? Aren't I you? was recording that. That was glorious, Christian. <laughs> I know what you should do, Adam, at the end, once we've technically signed off. Don't stop it. Just put that in.